Making It Plain, a podcast dedicated to discussing real issues that impact Black communities, Black families, and Black women. Your host, Dr. Key, is dedicated to discussing Black issues in a way everyone can relate. Welcome to another segment of Making It Plain with Dr. Key. I have with me today Dr. Brent Lewis, who is an expert in DE. And I am belonging, and I am just excited to have this conversation with you. So welcome. Thank you for having me, Dr. Key. And so today, we're going to start this conversation off with a hot topic. Just recently, we had an incident in Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. And I was just in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, And this incident resulted in a security guard basically being jumped, a Black security guard, middle-aged, being jumped by some white boat passengers. They were actually on a boat, and I guess they were probably docked in the wrong spot or something like that, and they decided to jump him in broad daylight. It resulted in a fight against cultures. It resulted in people swimming through the water to help the security guard who was down. It was all caught on tape and recorded. And it it really was, what you saw in all the images was Black and white people fighting against each other. And for me, I feel like it's symbolic of the world that we are in today. There is a fight, it seems, and people are promoting themselves off of it. They're leveraging it for their best interests. Um, and it's a fight against Black and white. And in this particular case, it was it was just everyone, I noticed on social media that everyone sort of started to make memes and started to be uh, thankful and promoting that fight um, because they said that finally the people of color actually fought back and actually won something because for so long they have been lynched, they have been hung, they have been shot, they have been punished, and there has been no recourse for some of the deaths and some of the lynchings and things that we've seen. So I want to get your perspective on what does that, what do you think that means right now as it relates to the work in DEI? I think it I think it's a symbol and a sign to where we are. I think you hit it on the head when you talk about um, the cultural war that happened out there in Alabama. And I think people were, Black people in particular, I think we were, not that we condone violence, but I think we were happy to see us fight back and happy to see Black folks come from near and far that were out there to support this man who legitimately was just doing his job. He was telling them they were talked in the wrong place. But I think it tells a lot about where we are as a country, uh, where we are as a world, and the pushback against this work, it speaks volumes because we do this work because of things like that. We do this work to say, Folks are people, regardless of the color they they are, um, or their profession, or their orientation. You should respect people. You should respect people's uh, jobs. That man 
a black man doing his job was jumped for doing his job. And I don't know that they would have done that to another white man because the whole group of people that jumped on him were white. I wonder what that would look like if a white security guard told them, you're part in the wrong place, you need to move your boat. Uh, but they didn't think very fondly of him. And we also know the historical, historical context that we're in situating this in Alabama, right? You're situated in Montgomery, where we know the history of things that happened to Black people in the Deep South. Um, and I think people have just got to know. Yeah, I, I see it as also there's a frustration, right? There's a frustration with Black people who are trying to have their voices heard and their voices are not being heard. And we are constantly pushing what it seems to be a, a brick wall, right? We are um, experiencing trauma in our work environments. We're experiencing more trauma just by watching the trauma, traumatic events that are happening to other people on social media. Many of us are afraid if we have sons and daughters who are out here by themselves, afraid that they're going to get caught up in something that is just some mess, you know? And that, that cultural, what we saw played out was those frustrations. People jumped in the water to go over to help this man because they're frustrated with where we are right now. And I'm concerned that we will only deal with who was right and who was wrong and not with the actual cultural war that led to this type of fight, right? Because we see this fight played out on our campuses. We see people who are trying to do the work being literally attacked and those individuals who are called allies be silenced in those attacks, right? Um, and so I would like to see something more happen, right? Not about who got arrested, who got fined, who got ticket. Let's really talk about this cultural war that's going on and how do we shift? And it's not about politics. It's literally about culture. Just the politicians are utilizing the culture to get what they want. And it's not okay. It's not, but it has gone so political that I don't know how we go. I don't know how we get back to uh, respect and back to care for people. Like we've gone so far in the wrong direction. Yeah. I don't know how we turn the tide back. You know, I've been in this work for a long time and it's always been hard, but. I don't know that it's always been political. And now it has become so political that anything that's considered a buzzword gets things on the radar. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about things like race, you're immediately talking about critical race theory. Or uh, you talk about the challenges that exist within law enforcement, you're immediately talking about defunding the police. Mm-hmm. You say Black Lives Matter you're immediately saying that all other lives don't matter. And that's not the case. But the politics has created all of this where we can't even get to a space of meeting in the middle. You either are on one side or the other in this work. Yeah. I think that it's unfortunate. I also think that it's unfortunate that we have some people doing, call themselves doing this work that are also making it very difficult to do this work because they are really not passionate about the work and they're causing further harm in the work. And that 
that that also sheds a light on multiple problems, right? We need the people who are doing the work need to be protected. They need to be safe and they need to have allies who are genuinely willing to sacrifice something. Because if you are an ally, you must be dedicated to the sacrifice. So it's not about, I'm an ally, I put it on my resume. It's about sacrificing your power and your privilege to move something forward. And and they're not doing that. They're not doing it. They're doing wearing it more as a badge of honor that nobody even gave to them. And we're just we're just in this place where we have people who are passionate about this. They're passionate about it because they suffer enough themselves. Because ninety six percent of them are people of color. Period. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're passionate about it, so they're doing this work. But then they're also being attacked. They're being hired to do the work getting attacked from the inside and the outside. And so how do they continue to move forward in this climate that we're in? Because somebody has to create a safety net for them, right? Like you want me to do this work, but don't just lay all the work on me. We need to share in the work. It's, it is a shared responsibility, one. Yes. And you talked about allyship. Allyship is an actionable thing. Mm-hmm. It's not just saying, oh, I'm an ally. Yeah. But when crisis happens, where are you? What side are you on? What layer of support are you providing? What layer of protection? Um, what does support look like for folks that do this work? Um, that privilege piece is critical. You know, when we do this work, people get offended when you start with social identities. But I got to help you understand where your privilege lies. You are a white person, cisgender, heterosexual. I've already listed three areas of privilege that you can use in this work, right? It, it's important to engage in your across your communities, right? I'm Black and I have conversations with Black people. Uh, I understand Black people and I understand where there are gaps in our learning around these topics. Right. But if I were a white person who is engaged in this work, it's important for me to do the same thing because my white counterparts can receive it differently from me, Mm -hmm. not from a person of color who already has the pressure, who is already marginalized, who's already expected to do more, to have to do that level of educating. I think something else you said reminded me of where we are in the post-George Floyd Mm. uh, era of our country. You know, 2020, everybody was writing positions, funding positions across industry. Yeah. There were there was millions of dollars poured into GDI. Whether you were hiring folks full time, you were bringing consultants on. There are several organizations that I worked with as a consultant yeah. uh, to build training, to build development, understanding for their employees, their students. And here we are three years later and everything is going backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I think in one weekend along several bits, four major companies let go of black women who were doing a DEI work for their company. And in one weekend, that was an indication of the backwards movement that we're having because they are getting rid of the people who helped make them successful. Because if we're being honest, uh, diversity brings innovation and it brings dollars. 
And then when you don't have those diverse voices in the room, you are losing money as a business person. And now we're moving backwards to where everything will be insular. And we won't have those diverse voices in the room because we're not, we don't want to pay attention to the diversity needs of our agency. We don't want to take care of the culture. We don't want to, you know, do the things necessary to move forward. And that's, that's unfortunate. So now we're talking about Black people or people of color who are doing this DEI work now on unemployment, mm-hmm. right? We've talked, we're talking about people who were not only passionate about this, made a career out of this as experts who are now receiving unemployment benefits because um, companies are moving away from this work. Well, and I think it's a, it's a disservice to organizations because not only does it diversify your workforce, not only does it innovate the ideas and the thought partners that can be in your organization, it's also a shift happening in workforce around generational workforce. Baby boomers are retiring. Mm -hmm. Gen Z is entering the workforce. Gen Z has grown up with technology. They have grown up through COVID. They've grown up to be flexible and nimble and learn about differences in an early age. They have grown up with the internet and cell phones. My young cousins can tell you about what it means to be uh, non-binary. They can tell you about what it means to be inclusive of people with disabilities. So when you think about folks who are entering the workforce, who are innovative, even at their colleges and universities, who are inclusive, they're going to be looking for that level of inclusive thinking in the workforce. And if we are going backwards, we're not only doing a disservice to our organizations, but long-term, how are we sustaining our organizations? Because these young professionals will not stay. They'll come into your organization and they're going to roll out. They are different. They are a bunch that will quit in a minute. They'll quit. They don't know nothing about how long they've been at a company. They are a a different bunch of people. And they will be entrepreneurs. They will start their own if they can't find what they need in the workforce. And so we have a series of problems that's coming down the pipeline as a result of what's happening right now. And if my concern is, we, like you said earlier, we've gone so far. How do we get back? Because I don't see the love in this. I don't even see integrity in this. I, I don't see any of those things. People who don't even know you will attack you professionally, misquote you, do all these different things, and really be sleep at night. And they can sleep at night. Whereas I could not sleep at night to do those things to another human being. Um, we are not even seeing people as humans anymore. Um, we're not even willing to listen to what people say, understand differences, and see how we can still work together. You know, we we have just come so far from it. it to me, it's more like inflamed anger all the time. And it's so much work to be angry. It's easier for us to come together, talk through stuff, collaborate, work together, build shift cultures, shift communities, and find some joy in our work. It is so much harder to be that angry every single day. Just in a store. I was in a store the other day with my husband. I was at JCPenney's. I was standing in line. There was a lady at the counter. There was me in line. There was no one else around. Another lady came from the other side of the store. She came right to me in my face and she said, I was here. 
I was here. And her, what she wanted me to do was to move out the line so that she can have that spot. Cause she was saying that that spot where I was, was her spot, even though nobody was there. And I had been in line for several moments. Right. And in that moment, I could have been angry, right? I could have been, you know, I could have said, who, who are you, right? Um, but I s- chose silence. And I realized that silence is also, it's, it's, it's giving you something, right? I chose silence. I never said one word to her. I looked at her. Didn't say one word. My husband didn't say one word. She said it twice. And eventually she moved out of my way. Um, but Sometimes people don't, we don't have silence. It's not giving us what we need. We're so frustrated. It can end up in a brawl. It could have ended up with me going to jail just for telling that woman no and her screaming, you know, she did this to me or whatever, because that's the society that we're in right now. We do not have integrity. Like we're really losing that integrity, that respectful piece of humans. It would not have hurt a woman to get behind me. It would, she would have been the second person in line. What's the difference between first and second? We all going up, right? But for her, she belonged in front of me. And we are in that kind of age where everything is just so inflamed. You say one word and it's twisted to something else. You don't say a word and people um, make up a story, right? Like we are in that age right now. And it's also been being fueled by what's happening in our federal government, what's happening in the Supreme Court, because we have that. We have a right. government shift in a whole state to erase the history of a whole group of people, just to erase us completely. Slavery was a benefit, and we know it's not true. Why are we teaching children lies? I started my career as a K-12 teacher. Yeah. I taught first grade and I taught third grade. And my third graders, Every year, we've done a Black history project. Mm-hmm. And we've done a history about, uh, when we talked about Thanksgiving, we've done history of indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. We've done history about Latinx communities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I taught my students the history as it should be told. I don't believe in telling children false narratives because as a child, I lost, I learned false narratives about Thanksgiving as a mm-hmm. holiday. You know, no one told me that the indigenous folks were already here and that they didn't want to give up their land right. and and be uh, colonialized into this new culture that the white people brought. Yeah. It was just so that, you know, this man, Christopher Columbus, comes and finds America. And they sat and had a meal together yeah. and all kumbaya. But that's not... Like as an adult in college, I learned that wasn't the case, no. right? So I just, I don't believe in giving false narratives. I don't believe in that. Yeah. And that's going to impact how our children see themselves. So my ancestors being a slave was a benefit. How is it a benefit when we are still behind? The numbers don't lie. The statistics don't lie. Our inability to make dollar for dollar as our white counterparts do not lie, right? We are still behind. We do not have the same wealth or ability to make the same wealth as our white counterparts. It is the same as it was in slavery. They were used so that the whites could make more money. And we need to be truthful about 
what happened. And my concern is about those students that are of color, that are growing up in those environments in Florida, and how they will be impacted by this, these lies and this, these irrational thoughts and these irrational teachings. Um, how would teachers of color feel about the things? Will they just skip those lessons altogether? Right? Because it's not true. So do I just skip that altogether? Don't even teach it at all. Um, I think we just have so much that we have to contend with. And it's causing for a high anxiety. Like, black people are traumatized. Right. And if you're not willing to have these conversations, it impacts everything. It's not just uh, a conversation about a conversation about race to have a conversation about race, right? You have to talk about it. Um, the, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Well, mm-hmm. that was in July. It took that long for for Black women in, that far into this year to even somewhat make what white men made all of last year, mm-hmm. right? So if you if you're not willing to talk about race, then how you address pay inequities within your organizations. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to talk about gender, you can't address inequities across the gender lines. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to talk about inclusive language, you will only use gendered language. You will only use um, language that is not always inclusive of veterans or people with disabilities or people who are biracial. You know, sometimes organizations do a real bad job of including them in finding spaces for them to feel engaged in their ethnicity or race. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're not having those conversations, people are going to feel other. People are going to feel left out, not welcomed. um, And we've been using the term in this work lately, belonging. Well, if you don't address DE&I, we can't even get to belonging. We can't get to belonging. Social, social justice. If we can't address the first part of the acronym, you're definitely not doing belonging work. Most definitely not. And then I read a new, I was reading some articles more recently, and it was talking about this idea of mattering, right? Just taking belonging to that next level. Because one thing about belonging, people like to flip it and make the the ownership on the individual, like it's up to you to belong, right? But it's mattering up to, you to assimilate. Right, mm-hmm. right. But mattering speaks to you don't think I matter here, right? You haven't provided me the right support, advocacy, mentorship, uh, space, safe spaces, coverage, pay, all these different things to show me that I matter here, right? And that's like a, just an added step and putting the onus on the institution and not the individual, right? Right. We have to tell people from the start that they matter, right? And show them that they matter. Pay them equally. It is it, it is not difficult to sit down and say, I hired this person with this title, with this pay, and I'm bringing another person in, and I need to be hiring that person at this title with that same pay. But that doesn't happen. It's always like this nickel and dime thing. Oh, because this person is this per- a person of color, I don't have to pay them as much, but I'm going to work them 50 and 60 hours a week like a horse, but I'm not going to pay them. 
And that's just, it's just not okay. It's not okay. And the statistics, the numbers, none of it lie. Um, the people in working for these institutions, they, you think that's a secret? You think people pay a secret? It's not a secret. These people see what you've done and you have no longer, be, you, you're no longer seen as an ally. You're actually just seen as one of the same people that they've been dealing with their entire careers, right? And, and so all of those things have to change. All of it has to change. I, I always tell the story about how I enter higher ed as a single mother with two children and how I, the job that I was offered paid less than my last position in city government. And so therefore my kids qualified for free lunch, right? And when I tried to negotiate, I was told there was no negotiation, right? And so you're looking at, at that. You, you're, you're a professor and you get free lunch? Like, how do you go to school and get a PhD and have to pay student loans and qualify for free lunch and be the lowest paid person in your whole department? And it's a big department. But also realizing that you're Black and you're a Black woman. That's a problem. And so on Equal Pay Day, I usually tell my followers that story because they need to hear that story because it's a real reality and a good example of how the system has failed us, how the system has failed and continued to fail us. And so we can't even get to equal pay if we can't even get to why a person is here in the first place. Like, how do we start talking about equal pay and we can't even bring them in the institution and make them feel like they even matter in that institution? We can't even talk about inclusive practices and all of these different things. And so sometimes for professionals like ourselves, it feels like a lonely uphill battle that is never going to be solved. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's never going to be solved. And you know why it feels that way? I hate to say this, but it's the, it's the hard honest truth. It feels that way because white men and white women will not enough of them won't join the fight to move it forward. Cisgender, hetero, white, able-bodied, Christian-identified people have to join the fight and move it forward, particularly white men Mm -hmm. and There are some who are willing to do that. There are some who are willing to use their identity to help the cause. And there are some who don't want to see it improve. Um, I always tell folks, hate and bias and discrimination, you're not born with that. You learn it. Mm -hmm. And so those generations from before, you know, my parents are baby boomers. The, The white folks they went to school with when integration happened, they learned racism from their parents. And yeah. their grandparents, yeah. and it's the same. It's the same strategy used today. You know, working with college students, they didn't. They weren't born racist. They weren't born calling people slurs. Yeah, heard it. They're products of it. Yeah. And so, until behavior in the majority shifts then the tide will never change. Behavior and willingness to push for change from the majority has to push this cause forward. It cannot just be Black and brown folks. It cannot be just queer folks. It cannot be just people with disabilities. We 
we don't have the leverage. We don't have the ability. We don't have the access to push this needle forward by ourselves. Mm -hmm. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think about the George when George Floyd happened and I did an interview and I was asked in the interview, what can people begin to do now to address racism and discrimination and all that? I tell them, start with your home. Start with your home. That is what you can do. And I stand by that. And now everyone is regressing back and they're 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 not addressing this. It's not as important. No, that's been removed from a couple of years. If you were ever really dedicated to change, you have to start in your household. You're going to have the greatest impact in your home because you're raising people in your home. You're setting examples for people in your home, right? And I feel like now that question doesn't even make sense because I just feel like the dedication, the commitment, the interest is not even there. Like it was temporary. And we knew it would be temporary. We talked about it being temporary, but the reality of it being temporary or the reality of the fact that it's so, to me, it's gotten so much worse so quickly with the political um, focus on it that. It is, it's just shameful, right? It's embarrassing. When you go out to other countries, they're like, oh, what's happening there? Like they are embarrassed for us and we're embarrassed to even talk about it. My, so, parents, my parents always said, charity starts at home and spreads abroad. And I would say inclusion, equity, it starts at home. It starts with development. Mm-hmm. Whoever's raising Children, if you're not inclusive, if you're not equitable, if you don't care about this work, that's not to say that children can't grow up and learn a different way because that also happens. But if you if you taught those inclusive practices earlier, I wouldn't see college students at the crossroads where I see them now. Many of our white identified students are at the crossroads of wanting to be inclusive, wanting to learn language, inclusive language, wanting to be engaged in this dialogue, wanting to be there for their peers, but it's countering to what they were taught. And so they're they're having to really wrestle with, this is what I was taught about being white. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what I learned. This, You know, I've always been first. I've always been the smartest. I've always been the go-to athlete. You know, Mm -hmm. no one ever challenged me uh, to think differently. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes when I have white students in my classes, I ask them, have you ever had a faculty or, or teacher of color? So many of them say, you're the first, and they're college students. That's a problem. But the pipeline is very slim of teachers of color. One, you're not paying us. And two, we're we're burdened with all the work uh, for our students of color in our school. Yeah, I agree with you. It's just, I don't know where we go from here. Mike. Leaders, step up. Mm -hmm. If you have power and privilege in your roles, make it a priority. And don't just make it a priority with lip service. Fund it, 
bring in experts, institutionalize it across your organization. It is not just a department's work. It is an organizational shift. An organizational structure shift has to happen. It has to be embedded across your departments, across your organization. Anybody within the organization should understand what inclusivity means, what equity, what an equity toolkit is in your organization. Uh, how do we use it? How do we frame it within our work? Mm-hmm. All of your employees should be able to talk about that. If it's important, it's not just one person's work. You're adequately staffing the folks that are doing this work. You're adequately sending them to professional development and funding those development opportunities. You're connecting them to senior leaders. You're putting them at the table to have a seat at the table, and you're valuing their voices in those spaces. You're not excluding them from backdoor conversations that you're having on the side uh, because you don't like the idea they presented. Mm-hmm. You're truly supporting them. And when things go wrong, when there's public outcry, when there's crisis, when there's frustration from stakeholders and constituents, you stand with them. Even when it gets hard, you stand with them or you stand in front of them. And I think the safety of these individuals is so important. I think that it is easy for people to step back and make a person just handle it whatever by themselves. But when I think about safety, I think about psychological safety and physical safety, right? Like you cannot, first off, the individual that you hired to lead these initiatives and this work did not cause racism in your institution, discrimination of any populations in your institution. So they should not bear the burden solely. And so you need to be keeping them safe, psychologically safe and physical, physically safe and keeping them in a safe environment that says that this institution have these this individual's back when times get hard. And I think that's what we're missing. We're missing the psychological safety. We're missing the physical safety. And literally, there are instances that happen that leaves these individuals unsafe. Leaves us very vulnerable. And the institution will say, oh, that's not my problem. Well, the problem originated here. I didn't have this problem before you. So that is your problem. So don't say that's not that's not my problem, right? And so there's a lot that the institution needs to do if they're going to do this work. And I think what happened with George Floyd is a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon, but they did not consider that they needed to to provide physical and psychological safety for the people that they hired. They, they also still build, check the box. And they didn't build structure. No. You can't just create a position. Yeah. You've got to build infrastructure. And where there's no infrastructure, where there's no foundation, it will inevitably fail. You did not set the person up to be successful. You didn't set the work up to be successful. Because these systems, mm-hmm. these uh, white white supremacy did not just begin, and it's not just seen in race spaces, right? White, white supremacy shows up in all of the isms, mm-hmm. right? So when you create this work, you've got to be thoughtful. You've got to be intentional. Talk to the experts that have done it, not just the Black person that you know on your team who's Black. Because they may not have expertise in DEI 
Is they may be a black person, right? That's because, that's because a color, a race, a culture does not mean an expert in DEI. Everybody has different journeys. Every everybody has different lenses in which they see the world in. That's not what it means. Like if you really want a person to do DEI work, then you should hire an expert and you should be dedicated to that work. And I'm glad you brought up systems and structure and all of that, because I think people don't understand that it's not about the individual. It's about the systems in place for that individual to lead and do the work. Because what happens is if you leave an institution and I've left the institution, left the institution and watch, you watch everything that that person was there and built fall because the you relied on the individual instead of building a system. If you build a system, when an individual leaves, it should not fall. It should be able to continue moving. Build the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. Create support systems. Uh, be true to what you say you are. Show up. Have integrity, and be accountable. Hold yourselves accountable. No. Hold your organizations accountable to what you say you value, what you say your mission is, what you say your vision is. If you're going to make this work part of your fabric then you've got to hold yourself accountable to that and to the people that you brought in. And as we begin to wrap up this conversation, I do want to end on a note of accountability also means being honest with yourself about the areas in which you need to grow. Because if you're not constantly checking yourself checking your emotions, checking your feelings and checking the lens in which you see the world, making sure your bias is not impacting your judgment, you're not growing. And to honestly, to be an ally, to be a supporter of this work, you should come to the table knowing you're flawed. Everybody's flawed. We just got different flaws, right? And that growth is important in people having buy-in about what you're trying to lead and what you're trying to do. And we have to, we have to continue to grow. And I think that's uh, falls in line with that integrity. And people are looking for that integrity. You want people to buy in. You want to, to lead these initiatives. You have to be serious about what you're doing. And not just using these buzzwords. I saw all these buzzwords thrown out. You know, people were talking anti-racist. I'm an anti-racist. I'm an anti-racist. Did you read the book? You didn't read the book because if you read the book, you would know. To be an anti-racist, you cannot be upholding a racist system. That means you have to sacrifice something. You have to be the person to call out the racism in the system. You know, and so people are not even studying the stuff that's ha- that, that they're saying. They're just using the language and moving forward. Um, so we have so much, so much, so much growth to do. But I want to thank you for taking time to have this discussion. I think it's an appropriate discussion for the time that we're in. I know we probably don't have a lot of solutions, um, but we do have some solutions for leaders. We do have some solutions for those who are dedicated to this work. And my hope is that that we can continue to progress, even though it feels like we're going backwards. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that there's benefit in this work. There is passion in this work. It is. It comes with love, and it comes with um, dedication and support. It. Um, engage in it. Learn. Take challenge and support when it's needed, um, and continue this work forward because it is so meaningful to communities that um, have been historically marginalized. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lewis, for this conversation. And that is Making It Plain with Dr. Key. Thank you for listening to Making It Plain with your host, Dr. Key. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Sparkman Key Consulting, LLC. Check us out at www.thedrkey.com. This episode is sponsored by Belinda B, the original boss bag designed for women on the go. Visit bbbossbags.com.